Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Uh, We began looking at this last week about the notion of angels in the world today. And uh, we briefly talked about how if you go to the bookstores, you go to even little trinket stores, uh, we see angels represented. We see uh, books about angels. We see jewelry with angels. We see little trinkets or precious moments or whatever. Cremaic statues of these angels with long flowing blonde hair and long flowing robes and very idealized version of angels. You can even go into other media, uh, see TV shows about angels, touched by an angel. I never watched it, but I know it came on. I know my wife at some point was banned from watching uh, Highway to Heaven with Michael Landon because it always made her cry, and her father said, you can no longer watch it, Michael Landon, anymore. Um, but these, these shows about angels, and in these shows, these angels are kind of morally loose, not exactly holding to the same standard as our God. Maybe they are displayed or depicted as a more tolerant deity than maybe the big bad God. And what we see is what they are is far removed from the biblical notion of angels. They're not some idolized version of what we want God to be. Ours is not the only time that held a false view of angels. For the first century Jew, they held a different misunderstanding of angels. And I think, probably in some ways, their misunderstanding was a little bit more justified than ours. Um, even John, as we saw last week as we finished, or yeah, last week as we finished up Revelation, at some point, the angels tell him, he falls down and begins to worship this angel because what the, what the angel is telling him and, and the angel's appearance is so staggering, the apostle John, who wrote, the book of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation begins to worship this angel. And the angel says, no, don't worship me. That's not appropriate. But there are many excellent things said of angels in scripture. They are by no means frivolous things, but neither are they to be worshipped. There are multiple verses that talk about the law being given through angels. <coughs> Hebrews 2.2 will say this. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution, the message given to angels was by angels was reliable. 
Acts 7.53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. There's this uh, notion that the, the word of God, the very word of God came through angels. And that is a staggering thing, isn't it? The actual word, the actual law being delivered <coughs> through angels. But even though, even though the law may have been given through angels, Christ is better. That's the point here. Even though <coughs> angels are have their own majesty, their own all, their own whatever, Christ is superior. What was revealed in the new covenant through Jesus <coughs> is better than what comes through the old covenant. Turning then from the gospel back to the old is folly. It's foolishness. And how is the writer of Hebrews going to prove this? He's going to go to the Old Testament. And in fact, he's going to reference seven passages in the Old Testament that prove that Jesus is better. We're only going to look at five of them today. And as we look at them, we're going to see three things that, that are pointed out. Jesus is superior for three reasons. At least here. There's probably more. There's definitely more. He has a better name. Jesus has a better name. So the first thing we're going to look at is the name of Jesus. Second, we're going to look at the worship of Jesus. Jesus deserves worship. And third and finally, we're going to look at the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus is sovereign. He, the name of Jesus is the first point. The worship of Jesus, the second point, and the sovereignty of Jesus. Let's begin by looking at the name of Jesus. Jesus is better than the angels because his name is better than theirs. It's kind of an interesting thing to say, right? It's like me coming in and saying, I'm better than you because my name's better than you, right? That's kind of silly. I mean, obviously, Daniel's a more superior name than just about every other name, but it's a joke. It's funny. No? Okay. How can the name of Jesus be better? How can a name be better? And it begins in verse 4. Verse 4, having become much more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what name did he inherit? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The name that was given to him is son of God. The highest name that can be given. And because his name is son of God, you should not, cannot, better not fall from Christianity back into this old obsolete religion and he goes two places to prove this psalm 2 and second samuel 7 both of these texts talking about the messiah so what does psalm 2 7 say psalm 2 if you've never studied psalm 2 psalm 2 in its totality is this great psalm about the messiah it's all about jesus if you ever want to go hey where is where in the psalms can i go learn about jesus go to psalm 2 the whole thing 
Maybe someday I'll do a sermon on it, but not today. We're just going to look at this one verse, Psalm 7, 2, 7. And it's, it's exactly what it says here. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. I will tell you that this is what it says in Psalm 2, 7. I will tell you, tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay. And there's a question we immediately have to ask, because what do we already know about Jesus? Well, Jesus is eternal, Right? How can that which is eternal be begotten? Begotten means to beget, birth, create, in a sense, right? How can that which is eternal be begotten? How can Jesus, who is eternal, inherit a name? If he was always son of God, from all eternity son of God, how can he inherit the title son of God? How could he inherit his name? And the first thing we have to do is when something is questionable or unclear or we're not sure, well, what does scripture say about it? What do we, can, we see in scripture? And it's something we see over and over again in the New Testament. Luke one thirty two. This is the angel, talking about angel, talking to Mary. He will be great and will be called the son of the God most high. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David. We go on to Matthew 3, 17, the baptism of John. And behold, a voice said from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And again, the same words actually later in Matthew 17, verse 5. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The first thing we have to see when we talk about the begetting of, of Jesus or the, the inheriting of a name, is that God, Jesus, is eternally God. J.R. Packer says this, The God-man to the Father, while he was on earth, was not a new relationship occasioned by the incarnation, but the continuation in time of the eternal relationship between the Son and the Father in heaven. As in heaven, so on earth. He is always Son. But we see in the incarnation a continuing a reality that was in heaven that is now continuing on earth. But we can go on. Okay, we understand. Yes, he inherits the name son. But what does that mean? What does it mean to inherit the name son? And so we go to Acts 13. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus... As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul here equates the raising of Jesus from the dead with his begetting. He links this to this exact psalm. Later in Romans 1.4, he says this, And was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul links between this idea of begetting, becoming, and the resurrection. And the ancient idea of inheritance is key for us to understand this today. What does it mean to inherit? So nowadays, when you talk about an inheritance, uh, you would think about something like this. Sadly, I'll, I'll try to use myself as an example. Gracie, don't get your hope up. You're not going to have much of an inheritance. I'm a pastor. It's just the way of it. 
Um, but it would go something like this. Uh, me and my wife, we have, live a long, full life. We uh, have a will. Maybe I, I pass away, of course, first, and then she passes away later. That's how it goes. Men always die first. Uh, and then the will. And we think of inheritance like this. Uh, my daughters and my son will read the will, and they will see the things we inherit to them. You know, maybe Luann says, I'd like to give my wedding ring to Ashton, my wedding band to Gracie, things like that. That's what we tend to think of an inheritance, right? Uh, we think of it in the sense of a will. This was not the same thing that we would see exactly in a Roman society. In Roman society, a son would come of age, and at that age, he was approved by the father. There would be a ceremony that went together with this, where he was received and bestowed with the father's name. Now, what was always true of that son from the time he was born? He was his father's son. He had the name of his father. But there was a legal transaction that happened that showed to the rest of the world, this is my son. And I am making this official and true so that not because I don't know it, but now all of you know it. Okay, now let's take that. And apply it to Jesus. And Paul says specifically to the resurrection, right? This is my son. Do you know, want, to, want to know how I'm proving to you stubborn, ignorant people? That's probably harsh, but Jesus, God would never say that. That this is my son. I just raised him from the dead. This is my ceremonial claiming of this man, Jesus, as son of God. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He is the only man who ever was born and died and did not remain dead. You are my, he is my son. He obediently endured the cross. And his name is son of God. And I am putting my divine and supernatural signature on it as it were. You take a will, you sign it, right? This is God's. This is figurative. Don't take it literally. This is God's signature saying, this is my son. He goes on. That was our first second Psalm 2. Our second verse is 2 Samuel 7, 14. Just the beginning part of that. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, when you, if you go and read 2 Samuel 14, and you're looking, reading it in the context, excuse me, 2 Samuel 7, this is God talking to David. And David wants to build a house for God. And he says, no, you're not going to build the house for me. Your son's going to build for me a house. And I will be a father to him and he shall be a son. So there's an immediate sense here where you read it and you're saying, okay, that's talking about Solomon. And Solomon would go on to, to build the temple, right? But the writer of Hebrews, through divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says it's not only that. Yes, there's an immediate fulfillment, but there's an ultimate fulfillment. Because the house that Solomon built, what happened to it? It didn't last forever, did it? And he says it'll last forever. So while we see an immediate fulfillment, it's not the ultimate fulfillment. He says, he will build my house, and I will be a father to him, and he will be to me a son. Now the question becomes this. To which of the angels did God say, I will be a father to you, and to me you will be a son? And the answer is, 
Zero. To no angel did God ever say, you will be my son and I will be your father. Zero. Since it has been said of Jesus, we must acknowledge him as superior. Today we look at this and we go, okay, Daniel, I understand what you're saying. That actually makes a lot of sense for me as I consider um, how the first century Jews made a mistake about the angels and they were probably worshiping them some, but I don't worship angels. And that's good, right? I don't say, well, yeah, that's good. You don't worship angels. Don't, don't start to worship angels. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't worship angels. And we can say, maybe from this standpoint of history, we go, we don't have the problem with angel worship. And that's good. But this passage comes and speaks to us still. Because while we may not worship angels, we certainly worship other things. And what does it mean to worship a thing? To give it allegiance? To pay homage to it? To bow the knee to it? What does it mean to bow the knee to something? What is... What is that imagery of bowing the knee to something? That is saying, it's a position of humility, right? Of subservience. To bow the knee to something. To say, I am placing myself under your authority. That's what it means to bow the knee, right? What are the things that we bow the knee to? What are we giving authority in our lives? Are, are the things we worship tend to be a bit more sneaky in some ways these days? Or, or maybe it's not that they're more sneaky, it's that we're more delusional. <laughs> we become more delusional. Because the question, I think the question becomes this. What do we allow to keep us from the, the service and worship of God. What do we allow to keep us from the service and worship of God? And I'm not just talking about, and I am talking about, but not just talking about a worship service. When I say service and worship, I'm not saying worship service. Although certainly that can, uh, their applications can be to that. If, and I'm going to use golf because I don't think I have any golfers in here, so nobody will think I'm actually talking about them. Um, if you get up on a Sunday morning and you say, you know what, I go to church every other Sunday, but today, today I'm going to the golf course. Who are you bowing the knee to? And it can be a, a myriad of things. Where do we put our time? Where do we put our money? Where do we put our energy? What are we bowing the knee to? Does Jesus... As the heir of the living God, have authority in your life. Because understand this, whether you give him the authority, the authority is his. He has authority of all, over all of creation. And at some point, all nations, all leaders, no matter how great, no matter how small, all people will account to him because he is Lord and King. Not only is he Lord of all the nations, 
He is Lord of his church. Are we letting him lead his church? Or are we getting in the way? Are we giving him the authority to speak into all aspects of the church? Are we giving him authority to direct us? Are we giving him authority over our own lives? And the question becomes, what are we not willing to give up, right? What are we not willing to give up? We must turn to him in obedience. All right, we come to our second point. That was um, um, the name of Jesus. Now we see the worship of Jesus. And he goes now to Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And you'll, you'll see, in, if you're in Hebrews, this is in verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, so, and it's, this is a very straightforward point. The first one may be a little bit confusing because what does it mean to beget, so on and so forth. This is very straightforward. He says, to which of that which was created... Did he say, let God's angels worship him? Now, there's an implied uh, thing being said here, right? He said to Jesus, let angels worship him. Or he said of Jesus to the angels, worship him. He brought the firstborn, the firstborn being God. Not that he was born, but that he was, uh, as we saw here, begotten as son, declared as son, and angels are commanded to worship him. And we see this again and again. In just the Gospels, you can see three key places where the angels worship him. His birth. We just got done seeing this, right? And there were shepherds in the field abiding by their flocks at night. And, and angels appeared all around him, saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. They sang and worshipped him. At the tomb, angels rejoiced and worshipped. And at his ascension into heaven... Really key, three key moments, right? His birth, his, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's not just that Jesus is first. A firstborn creature. He's not a created thing. He is eternal. But that he is exalted over all other creatures. F.F. Bruce says it this way. He is called firstborn because he exists before all creation and because all creation is his heritage, his inheritance. The application is very simple for this one. Because Jesus is who he says he is, we have to worship him. We must worship him. And part of that is referring to what we do here on Sunday morning. Well, we come and worship him corporately. We sing songs. We pray. We hear the word preached. It's all part of what we do in an effort to worship God because he is to be worshipped. We're commanded to worship him. <clears throat> but it becomes so much more than Sunday morning, doesn't it? All of our life, the whole totality of it, Every minute of our being is to be worship of Jesus. I think this is something, and we could sit here and we could argue about the Puritans, what they did right, what they did wrong. I think it's something the Puritans understood. If you ever pick up the Valley of Vision, which is a, a, 
a book of Puritan prayers, they had prayers for everything. Prayers for the morning, prayers for the evening, prayers for the end of the year, prayers for the beginning of the year, uh, pastor's prayers, prayers for grace, prayers for when I'm sinning, prayers for this, prayers for that. And there's someone I think they understood. There was no aspect of their life that did not require them engaging in God with prayer. Nothing was off the table. I think that's something we could be reminded of. That no matter what we do, we are to do it as an act of worship to God. Now, <clears throat> let me be careful. Because I'm about to say our, our, even our recreation can be an act of worship. That does not mean that our recreation becomes a substitute for worship. We can't just go out and say, hey, I'm out here on the golf course worshiping God today, and that's taking place. And I, and I would... We're not going to do it today, but I will argue from other scriptures that that's not right. <clears throat> but you know what? I think there is a sense in which we say, today, if I'm out taking a walk with my family, I do it as a worship unto God. It means for us that if we're a mechanic, then we do our job as a mechanic, as an act of worship to God. No matter what we do, we do it as an act of worship from work to play to family. All of life, all of life must be an act of worship unto God. All of it. So if you're walking in the, in the fields, marking off tree lines, that's an act of worship to God. If you're dealing with another customer about a banking problem on their system, it's an act of worship unto God. If you're working at Honda and repairing these lines, it's an act of worship of, unto God. If you're in the medical profession or if you work at Home Depot, it doesn't matter. All of life is an act of worship unto God. If you're a stay-at-home mother, if you are a child who gets to do school and then go out and play, all of life, all of it must be an act of worship unto God. We must focus not on self, we must not focus on anything that is created. Again, we don't have the idolatry problems of, hey, this styrofoam cup has been made with man's hand, and I therefore shall worship this styrofoam cup. That's not the issue we tend to have today, right? We tend to worship that which is more intangible. We cannot give it worship. I think the thing we often worship the most is self. Gratifying in self, giving leeway to our thoughts, our, our motives. But God is alone. Christ alone is to be worshipped. Okay, we've seen the name of Jesus. We've seen um, the worship of Jesus. And now we look at the sovereignty of Jesus. And this begins in verse 7. He says, he is superior because of his divine sovereignty. Psalm one, uh, this verse 7 comes from Psalm 104.4. He makes his messenger winds, his ministers a flaming fire. So he, he begins by saying, look, don't mess with angels. There, there are winds and a flaming fire. Two things, particularly in concert with one another, you don't want to mess with, right? Well, I mean, it's no reason we don't have the analogy 
If you play with fire, you're going to get burned, right? It's, it's meant to be an image here of great might. Their glory, while they do have glory, is lesser than the sun. What we have to understand is they have something different. They're called ministers here. They don't have sovereignty. They have servanthood. And that's a huge difference. They are servants of God. Well, Jesus, he has sovereignty. The enthronement of Jesus Christ as the king, as the Messiah, was central to the Old Testament. It was central. We could go look at Isaiah 6, or Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And you've heard this before, right? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, excuse me, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the driving force of the Old Testament. And as we move into the New Testament, this is the same thing that the angel told Mary and Luke. Jesus is something more. We go on to verse 8 and we see, but of the Son, he says... And this comes from Psalm 45, verse 6. This is our fourth verse, if you're keeping track from the Old Testament. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Notice here who's speaking. As you go back to the beginning of verse 8 or excuse me, of verse 7, it says, of the angels, he says. Who says? God says. But we go down to verse 8. Of the Son, he says. Who says? God says. God says to Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice what's actually going on here. God the Father is declaring the Son God. You see it? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. A scepter being what? We don't tend to think of scepters today, although it'd be fun to carry one, right? Um, I'm sure if you, my wife is into this, I'm not into this. I'm sure at some point here in the coming weeks, she's going to watch that royal wedding uh, of whoever, I don't, king whatever, prince whatever with whatever girl from America. I honestly don't keep up with it. But I'm sure if you watch it, you'll probably see a scepter at some point. Someone's going to have a scepter. It's a royal wedding, right? We don't tend to think of scepters, but scepters are symbols of divine authority. And it says, Jesus, who is God, has the scepter of uprightness. He has divine authority. He is uh, one of the things that we call, the, or not we, but the, um, those who live in kingdoms with kings and queens, 
They're called the what? The sovereign. Now, they're not really totally sovereign. They may be a sovereign over their state or whatever, their country. But Jesus is totally sovereign. He does not have servanthood because he is God. <coughs> this is what happened in the fulfillment of coming of Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah. This increase of the government, of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David, over his kingdom, so on and so forth. This is the very thing that Jesus himself taught when we look at Luke and he's on the road um, to Emmaus. Ooh, that's right, Emmaus. And he comes across several of his disciples, right? And he starts teaching them. And what does it say? He opened up the word of God, revealing everything that was true about himself. And what it's saying is he opened up the Old Testament and showed it where it pointed to Jesus. Because Jesus is sovereign. The basis for us to exalt uh, the Messiah's perfect righteousness is found in the Old Testament. So the question is this, who will you turn for, for an uprightness which you lack? That makes sense. Who will you turn to for an uprightness that you do not possess in yourself? You must turn to the one who has the scepter of uprightness, who is the Lord of uprightness, who is sovereign and right in all that he does. The answer is there's only one place you can turn. There's not many. There is only one. The great message, I think, of this little passage in Hebrew is this. If we're going to boil it down to one sentence, I have become your father. I have begotten him as, as father. And these five references point or make prove the author's point. Jesus is better. And the point he's making is he's better than the angels. The reality is the point is this. Jesus is better than everything. He's better than everything. And he is worthy of our adoration. And you go all over. The, I, mean, I went to one passage in the Old Testament. Go read Isaiah today. You don't even have to get out of Isaiah I think there's a poster on our wall, right on the other side of that wall, right there, that is a list of places in the Old Testament you see the Messiah being prophesied. And it's a post, like a full poster-sized poster. And it's got tiny words to get them all on there. All right? And they're probably not all on there. Just a lot of them. God the Father acts and orders all of the world. He appoints and declares Jesus' son and heir. He commands the angels to worship him. He enthrones him on the eternal throne of righteousness. And because the father loves the son, he wants us to exalt and bless the son. He himself exalts and blesses the son. Just as the son loves the father and wants to be, wants the father to be praised. He appoints him as son that we might be reconciled to him and through him enter salvation. Remember how, in what manner, in what fashion did he reveal to us his begotten inherited son? The resurrection. Isn't that what Paul says? Through the resurrection. It's through the resurrection that we have salvation. 
the son being the mediator that brings that salvation. So now these verses speak to all who believe. Because guess what? It's not only now Jesus who is called son. It's you. Through Jesus. As we are part of his kingdom that are called son and daughter. And so we may call him father. With all the security and care and privileges of being beloved children of Christ. And this is the, we, as we come to the fifth and final verse, verse 9. Or the second half of verse 9, I should say. With the oil of gladness beyond your com companions. Excuse me, let's go a little. God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions, this anointing, this enthroning. You look in the Old Testament of anointing, and what was Nathan's, Nathan did it twice, right? First with Saul, and then with uh, David. The anointing, uh, declaring king. He has anointed Jesus, but it's an anointing with gladness. Because by his righteousness, by the righteousness of Christ, we gain a kingdom. We are members of that kingdom we will reign with him as his blessed companions forever and ever. I love the book of Hebrews. We still haven't gotten out of chapter one, and with this, this it's packed. It's so packed. Because it says to us stop holding on to fleeting, failing, Vaporous things cling to Christ. The only thing that will not fail or fade away, because his name is better, he is to be worshipped even by the angels, and because he is sovereign. He is not a servant, he is sovereign. He is not given servitude, not that he isn't a servant, because he does serve, but he is not in the position of a servant, he is in the position of a sovereign. So put nothing in his place, put him first among all things, for everything else is fleeting. And here's what I'll leave you with, which I think is a great truth. That is something that is very easy to say and very hard to put into practice. It's very easy to say, Jesus is better, surrender all to him. And if you were prone to responses if we were a good Baptist congregation, at that point, you, you would all say, amen. Amen, right? But we're not, we're Presbyterians, we don't talk. So don't start now, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, a vigorous nod, we might give. Because none of us would contend with that, right? None of us would disagree with that Jesus better and therefore we should worship him. None of us. It's when we try to put into practice that I think it becomes so hard. Because we like self a lot. We like the pleasures of this world a lot. Sometimes I think we get so stuck in our, whatever we're in, be it self, pride, arrogance, it doesn't matter what it is. Even I think sometimes in, in not those, those kind of things, but even in despair and, and loathing and other things, we get so stuck. It's hard. It's hard to see the things we've surrendered ourselves to. But there's a call here to remember. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what you're clinging to. It doesn't matter what you're holding on to. 
Jesus is better. He's 100%, 24-7, 365, better. All day, every day, right? He's better. Let us remember that. And let us cling to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Jesus, and we are thankful that he's better. Lord, would you help us to remember that and to apply it to our lives, to surrender the whole, total, every part of our life to him, that we may boldly live before his kingdom. Lord, I am tired of being scared to live in your kingdom boldly. Let us live boldly, no matter what the consequences each and every day living for you, not being ashamed of the gospel, not being worried about what those will think around us, but boldly living in your kingdom. We ask and pray for each of us this day. Amen.